Tonight we're going to be studying some amazing prophecies. How do we know that Jesus was indeed the Messiah? We're going to be touching on that prophecy. How do we know that we are living in end times and the time of the judgment? We're going to touch on that prophecy. So, tonight we're going to be talking about Revelation's time of the end. But to do this, we've got to go back. First off, let's go back to 1961. 1961, President John F. Kennedy put forth a challenge to Congress, and that was by the end of the decade, he wanted to have a man on the moon. That would be by 1970. It seemed unlikely, it seemed like uh, an audacious uh, proposal and goal at the time. But nonetheless, in less than a decade, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, 235,000 miles from the earth. Quite an accomplishment. Along with him, Michael Collins and Edwin Buzz Aldrin were with Neil Armstrong. They flew in Apollo 11. It took them four days to get there. They traveled at 80,000 miles a day, which is about 4,000 miles an hour. We find that when these men landed, they landed in the vehicle called the Eagle. And remember Neil Armstrong saying, the Eagle has landed. A voice coming back from outer space with a message to Earth. My friends, there's a message coming back to earth again. This message is coming through the book of Revelation to us. It's telling us in Revelation 14, 6, it says, Then I saw another angel. We read this text before, but you'll see as we go on, uh, we'll expand more on it. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth and every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It would be a worldwide message. The three angels' messages carrying the last warning that God has to the world to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. And let's look at what these angels have to say. First, Fear God and give glory to Him. He is the one that created us. He's the one that is worthy of our worship. He, it also says in verse 7, The hour of His judgment has come. The hour of His judgment has come, which means if the judgment is coming, then we have a responsibility to God, don't we? He's expecting us to behave in a certain way. Notice what else it says in, in this same verse. And worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the spring of water. Now remember I mentioned to you last night, was it last night? No, night before, that this language is the exact same language that's found in the Sabbath commandment, in the Ten Commandments. We are to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Notice what in here, what the main point is, to worship God. Why? Because in the last days, there is going to be a power called the beast, who will also demand worship. It's telling us, shall we worship the beast or shall we worship the best? Shall we worship God? And notice in verse 8, 14, 8, it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. Now, this can't be the first Babylon, the one that's in the Old Testament. Why? It already fell, right? It's out of existence. Now, in Hebrew uh, literature, when you see something repeated, it's a sign of emphasis. When Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. He's saying, Listen up, you guys. This is important. 
And when it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, it's saying this is important. Pay attention to it. Now, if it's not the first Babylon that fell, there must be another Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, it talks about a Babylon. So does Jeremiah. So does Isaiah. They all talk about a Babylon. The Old Testament prophets talked about the one in the past. But Revelation is talking about a Babylon at the end of time. Is it a, uh, is it a political Babylon? I mean, a nation? Or is it a spiritual Babylon? What does the word Babylon mean? It means confusion. Chaos. That's what it means. Spiritual, religious chaos. Where you get a whole bunch of different strange ideas that are not in the scripture, that are blended together. For instance, people often claim that they are keeping Easter, a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. What do little bunnies and Easter eggs and uh, uh, rabbits and eggs and all this stuff have to do? And fashions, I saw in the newspaper that uh, they were having a fashion show of different hats. What's that got to do with the resurrection of Jesus? A lot of stuff has come into Christianity that really has no biblical foundation. And so, he says, Babylon has fallen. Now notice, if anyone, and this is 14.9 of Revelation, if anyone worships the beast and his image, now notice that there are two things that will be coming up at the end of time. The beast power and an image to that beast power. I mentioned to you last time that when Nebuchadnezzar, which was the beast power of that time, he, he wanted worship of the people. And when the Lord took care of that situation in Daniel 2, what did he do right after that? He sets up an image of the, the statue that he saw in the vision. And he wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the rest of them bow down to the image. You see. And in either case, he was infringing upon the commandments of God that we are not to worship anyone but the God of heaven, you see. So we find that this is important because commandments of God are being attacked when you start doing this, especially if you have a religio-political power that demands worship. That's idolatry. We are not to worship any but the God of heaven. Then in 14.12, what's it say? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. By their works you shall know them. If I say that I accept Jesus as my Lord and I live like the devil, do you have reason to question how much faith I really have in the Lord? Should not my actions follow my words? This is what this is bringing out. And then in 14.7, again, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Fear means respect, honor. It means to do his will and to glorify his name. The prophet Daniel, in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, He saw the judgment scene in the end of the world. He looked ahead down over the ages and he could see what was coming. And he reveals this to us in Daniel chapter 7. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place. Now in those days, especially during the time of the Persians, the Persians, uh, when they went to when they were in court, they would have big cushions that they would sit on. And when they were in session, they would throw them down in around whoever was officiating, the judge. And like a jury or whatever, they would officiate with him. So the word thronos, in some uh, translations, say the cushions were tossed down. 
It means the same thing. In a courtroom, you know, they have benches for the jury to sit on, etc. All right, I watched till the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a, a Hebrew name for God the Father. He's the one who has been forever. Isn't it interesting that when the Bible opens, it says, in the beginning, God. Does it say where he came from? Doesn't give his pedigree or uh, his history. It just says, look, you little one-celled brains can't understand it anyway, so I'm not even going to explain it. That's basically what he's saying. He just says, I am. That's it. I am. You can't understand it. So I'm not even going to spend time on it. And so he says here, by the way, he said it nicer than I did. But anyway, the Ancient of Days was seated. The judge is presiding, okay? Now, his garments were white as snow. His hair of his head was pure wool. You see, white hair is symbolic of two things. Number one, it's symbolic of great age. It's also symbolic of great wisdom. So those of you who have white hair... Choose the wisdom. Okay? And his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery furnace. Its wheels a burning fire. Now it's interesting that God's throne oftentimes is referred to as having wheels. What's that mean? Does God's throne move? There's reason to believe that it does. And we're not going to get into that because that'll take me off on a tangent. But anyway, 7.9 goes on to say, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the what were opened? Ah, the books were opened. Well, I thought God knew everything. Uh, he could just say, you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost, you're saved, you're lost. And that's the way it is. Well, I suppose he could do that because he knows the future, he knows our hearts. But you know, God doesn't seem to operate that way. God seems to want us to appeal to our understanding. He's, he's not arbitrary. The devil tries to make God appear to be arbitrary and that he plays favorites and he's saying I'm not let's look at the books let's see what the criteria the evidence is why not because he needs to know he already knows but so that the jury and the witnesses will know that he is fair and just in his conclusions. Not only that too, but did you ever stop to think who's really on trial? God is really on trial. Why? Because the devil says, you are unfair. You are asking us to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. He's also saying you pick and choose. And so God actually is being accused by the devil. He says, what do we need these commandments for? We're perfect angels. We're perfect angels. Well, so was Adam. He was an angel, but he was perfect when he was created. We're perfect. Why do we need these commandments? Your law is unfair and unjust. And so before the whole universe, he's making accusations. And so let's look at the books. Let's look at the evidence. It's interesting that God judges the angels. So does Christ, actually. But he has given judgment of human beings to Jesus. Jesus is actually the judge. He's also your witness, by the way. He's also your lawyer. Hey, you know what? You've got a stacked jury in your favor. I mean, you, you shouldn't wait to get to court. Because the court is in your favor. 
That's why those who trusted the Lord should not fear the judgment. Because it's a time of vindication. And so, against the charges of the devil. So everything was seated. The books were open. Now notice it's plural. We know that the book of life, it mentions that the book of life is used. But there are other books that are mentioned in the scriptures too, which we can talk about a little later. 2 Corinthians 5.2 says this, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether good or bad. We receive our reward, whether it's a good reward or a bad reward, according to our deeds. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by grace because of our faith. Yes, we are. But we're judged by our works. Because by their works ye shall know them, those that truly love me. An apple tree, as I said before, an apple tree doesn't bear apples to prove it's an apple tree. An apple tree bears apples because it can't bear anything else. It can't bear pears or bananas or watermelons. It can only bear apples because that's its nature. And what does he want to do? He wants to change our nature. And if so, our deeds will either be good or bad depending on what kind of faith we are professing whether or not that faith has substance. Look at Acts seventeen thirty one. Because he hath appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He, he's not unfair. He will be righteous. He will go the long way around to make sure that any intelligent being will look at the evidence in the judgment and they will come up with the right conclusion. Why? He's not stacking the jury in his favor. He's letting them look at the evidence. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Ecclesiastes 11.9 In plain words, he's saying, young people, you may think life's, you know, fun, You can go out and do what you want if you wish. Sow your wild oats if you wish. But, he says, you've got to remember something. That, well, let me finish the text. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But then, listen to what he says next. But, know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. In plain words, we can do whatever we want. We have the power of choice. We're not little robots. If God made you so that you could only do what was right, how, how, what kind of a character are you going to develop? But God has given us the power of choice. Eve chose wrong. And look at the mess we all got in. Adam chose wrong. And look at the mess we got in, you see. But he says, if we, if we even from our youth are studying the word of God, think of all the aches and pains it would spare us through life. How many children are affected because of the actions of their parents who have separated themselves from the word of God? Even the youth themselves have made choices that they shouldn't because they separated from the word of God. All these will be brought into account. Look at Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. By the way, even though we may have made, st- I can think of a lot of stupid things I did when I was young. And I'm not going to tell you because it's none of your business. <laughs> okay? You probably did just as many stupid things. But I can come before the Lord and ask his forgiveness. And when I do that, and I ask Jesus, not my pastor, I ask Jesus to forgive me, he blots out that sin with his blood. And there's, in the judgment, there's no evidence against me. And when, when my name comes up 
And they say, let's see, Quilling, Quilling. Oh, yeah, here he is. And the devil said, you know what that rascal did? And he starts to enumerate off all of my sins, which takes him quite a while to finish. As he goes through that list and he starts listing all my sins, and Jesus says, yep, 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 yep. He did. He did do those things. Uh huh. Well, but where's the evidence in the book? Well, he looks, there's nothing there. I can't read it. Even though I did them, there's no evidence against me. Why? Because it's been covered with Jesus' blood. And so they say, why are you wasting our time? Get out of here. We've got more important things to do in this judgment. And the righteous will be vindicated because Jesus paid the price. My sins, the penalty for my sins is death. But Jesus died for me. He didn't excuse the sin. He paid the penalty for the sin, you see. And therefore, it's not held against me. I am not condemned in the judgment, even though I may be guilty of those. Anyway, so it says, let us hear. Now, notice this text. What is your purpose in life? Why are you here? It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I like the way the King James says, here is the whole duty. I mean, here is the whole reason for our being here. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. In plain words, this is your whole purpose for being around. It's to fear God, glorify him, and keep his commandments. That's in Ecclesiastes. So it's consistent what's said in the Old Testament with what's being said in the New Testament. God hasn't changed his mind. Notice also it says in Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every work into judgment, including the secret things, whether good or evil. Hmm. What are you watching on your computer? Hmm. I wonder, uh, do you ever hear of anything called pornography? Hmm. You know, I wonder how many of those secret things are being done. What about embezzlement? Nobody knows. Nobody's looking. So you do it not realizing that even the secret things, even your thoughts, the thoughts of your mind, a person may not have done something, but boy, what they were thinking. You see, these things come into play in the judgment, whether they are good or evil, whether they have been forgiven or they have not. And I want to emphasize that, whether they have been forgiven or They have not, you see. No matter how sinful your life is, God is willing to forgive your sins and not hold them against you if you confess and repent of them and start walking in the right way. You know, that's what the word conversion means. Conversion means I was walking this way and then I turned around and walked this way. That's all the word conversion means. You change directions. And he wants to convert our hearts. Notice Revelation 14, 7. The hour of his judgment is come. You notice how that keeps popping up because it has a lot of implications. Then Revelation 22, 12 says, And behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now that's important. I am coming quickly. Now, Quickly, it's been a couple thousand years since Jesus left here. I don't know what his definition of quick is, you see. But we've got to realize that from the time the judgment has begun, it's fairly quickly. We don't know when Jesus is coming. And anybody who tells you that they know the day and the hour of Jesus' return is not consistent with Scripture. And mistakes have been made along that line. But notice he said, my reward is with me. What does that mean? It means that we receive our reward when Jesus comes. Not before, not after, but when Jesus comes, he brings our reward. 
And we'll be talking more about that a little bit later. And it says he will give to everyone according to his works. For those who have been trusting in him, they receive a positive reward. Those who are not, they will receive a negative reward. And so we find the book of Daniel, as I mentioned before, goes hand in glove with Revelation. Why? Because it, Daniel is the key to our understanding when the judgment begins. And not only that, but it also is key to helping us understand who the true Messiah is. Let's look at the next slide here a second. Daniel 8.14. Important text to know. Daniel 8.14. It says, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That's 2,300 days. Well, that was up a long time ago. 2,300 days? That's only equivalent to what? About uh, three and a half years, is it? I think. Anyway, I'm not a mathematician. You figure it out. But you can see that's, well, no, it would be longer than that. But that, that would, if they were literal days, that would have been up a long time ago, right? All right. But as we look at this, it said, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Well, what's that got to do with us? The sanctuary in the wilderness is gone a long time ago. The temple is long gone. So what's he talking about? The sanctuary. You see. And this is where a point of confusion has come in history. Because back in the 1840s, they believed that, well, actually, there's only really four sanctuaries that you can think of. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? This is a sanctuary for the Holy Spirit. Then the earth is a sanctuary for life, isn't it? For the animals, the birds, etc. And then there was that sanctuary they carried around in the wilderness and later the temple. That was a sanctuary. Well, they thought, it can't be talking about my body because of the context of it. Well, it must mean the earth. And if it says that the sanctuary will be cleansed, aha, that means that Jesus is coming to purify the earth. You see? But there's one thing they didn't realize. They didn't think about. The Bible uses a fourth term for sanctuary. And that is the sanctuary in heaven, which was the type from which the sanctuary on earth was made as a model, you see. So which sanctuary was going to be cleansed? It can't be this one because it's not around in the last days. The earthly one. So it must be the earth, they thought, because they had forgotten about the one in heaven. Let's go on a little bit further because he elaborates on this. You see, the sanctuary of old needed to be cleansed because every day the sinners in ancient Israel would bring in their offerings. Usually a lamb, but it could be another animal depending on what the sin was. What he would do, if I sinned, I would bring a spotless lamb. It couldn't be, you know, the leftovers. It had to be the best that I could bring. He would bring a spotless lamb. He, and outside of the sanctuary, outside of the temple court. Why? Because Jesus died outside the court, you see. He would bring the lamb and then the sinner, not the priest, the sinner would put his hands on the head of that animal and press down on it. He would confess his sin over that animal. What was he doing? He was transferring the guilt of his sin to the animal. And then the sinner, not the priest, the sinner was handed a knife 
and it was the sinner himself who had to slit the throat of the animal. Why? Because Jesus died for my sin, you see. And I think God gave us this to impress upon us how just how horrendous sin really is. And he would slit the animal's throat. And that sin would be transferred to the blood. The priest would collect a little vial of it, a little bowl of it. And then he would, that is transferred now to the priest. He in turn takes it inside the sanctuary and he sprinkles it on the horns of the altar. Then he goes in and he sprinkles some of the blood on the right before the curtain that separates the holy place and the most holy place. Why did he do this? Even though the sinner said there, praise the Lord, I am forgiven. He goes skipping home, free as a bird, because his sins have been forgiven. But is there a record of his sin? Uh Uh-huh. It's recorded in the blood that's sprinkled in in the temple, you see. That blood is still there. Day after day, they did this. And it wasn't until the um, it wasn't until the end of the year, on the Day of Atonement, that that curtain would be cleaned, and the temple would be cleaned, wiping away. Why? Because that Yom Kippur, as they called it, was the time that represented the judgment, the final judgment when the collective sins of the people were to be wiped out. Oh, day by day, forgiveness was available in the holy place. In the most holy place, it was for the collective sin of the people that the sins were forgiven. And notice in Exodus 25, 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. It has always been God's desire to be with his people. As a matter of fact, Jesus is called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. When he was in the Garden of Eden, Christ walked in the Garden of Eden talking to Adam and Eve. And he finally came as the Emmanuel to be with us. It's always his desire to dwell with his people. And have his people dwell with him. Notice Exodus 25, 9. It says, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle, the pattern of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In plain words, everything that's connected, even the furniture that's in that tabernacle, is copied after the sanctuary in heaven. And here is the earthly model that they carried through the wilderness. At least an artist's conception of it. Here's where the sacrifice, the body of the lamb, would be burned. Then the priest would wash himself in the laver. Here's the sacrifice. He he was to be washed clean with water, which also, by the way, symbolizes baptism. You see, washing away our sins. And then he would bring this in, and here's the altar of incense. And before the curtain here, he would sprinkle some blood. And this had horns on it too. He put a little bit of blood on that. Day in and day out. This curtain separated the holy place here from the most holy place, which was only entered once a year. What took place on the great Yom Kippur, which symbolized the day of judgment? The high priest would come in before the Ark of the Covenant. He'd put some blood on the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the collective sins of the people. Notice also, there's an angel over here. This is called the covering cherub. There's another one here, covering cherub. That light in the middle is the presence of God. It's called the Shekinah. Okay? Now, it's interesting that the Shekinah, what does the word Shekinah mean? 
The word Shekinah means glory. And it says in the scriptures that Jesus is the glory of the Father. You see. But anyway, Jesus, this symbolizes Jesus, our high priest, coming before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is the box, the Ark of the Covenant, that contained certain items. What was in the Ark? We find that there was the there was the bowl of manna that fell in the wilderness. There was a bowl of that that they collected and put in there. There was also Aaron's rod that budded. That was inside the box. And there was the Ten Commandments on stone. That was put inside the box. Now, it's interesting that here's the law, but above it, where you saw the two angels, there was a solid gold lid that was called the mercy seat. What did that symbolize? It symbolized God's mercy. Even though we have violated the law, in his mercy, he extends to us forgiveness in that day of atonement if we are hidden in him. Notice, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances, that means the ceremony they went through, of divine worship, uh, service and the heavenly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. Just as there was an earthly tabernacle, was was it patterned after? It was patterned after the heavenly one. And notice, what did this have? It had the, uh, the lamp stand over there, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, by the way. And then the turbulent showbread. Notice the two piles. This is on the side of the north. This symbolized the throne of the Father and the Son in there. And you notice you got the triune God there. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity because the word Trinity didn't exist at that point. But you see the triunity, the triune God here, the Father and the Son sitting here. The Holy Spirit doesn't sit because he's always ready to go. He's the one that through his oil gives you the light in your life to speak for him. And so it says that these items were in there. And behind the second veil, in plain words, that one over there, the one that had the blood sprinkled on it, that is the holiest of all, or the most holy. And the high priest would go in there with a golden censer. And out of it, you know, he'd be burning incense, and that would be smoke going up, symbolizing the prayers of the people. And it says, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, which are the golden pot, which was in the in the ark, the golden pot that had the man Aaron's rod that budded and the uh, tablets of the covenant and the cherubim above it. Okay? Overshadowing the mercy seat were these two angels. Lucifer was once one of those angels. He was a covering cherub who fell. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. In plain words, Paul didn't have enough time to explain everything, just like I'm talking fast trying to explain it now. Notice in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. When Jesus ascended to heaven, where did he go? He went up to the heavenly sanctuary to become our high priest. Thus, in the New Testament, is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews ties Leviticus in the Old Testament with Revelation in the New Testament, you see. If we didn't have the book of Hebrews, we'd have a hard time knowing what Jesus did when he left the earth. But it ties it in. And notice again, Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus is our high priest, we no longer need an earthly priesthood. You see, he is our high priest. We take our sins directly to him. And so we find that he is the one who intervenes for us. 
For we do, have a, we do not have a high priest who can not sympathize with our weaknesses. In plain words, Jesus has been human. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like when you're hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired because he was tired. What makes him different from the other members of the Godhead? The Holy Spirit was never human. The Holy Spirit never died. God the Father was never human and never died. But it was only the Son who was human and died. You see, he took on our humanity. Why? So that he could be our, our perfect lawyer in the heavenly court. And it says, at all points he was tempted, but he didn't give in to it. Adam was tempted, and he gave in. We find here that Jesus is undoing what Adam did. Look at 4.16 in Hebrews. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why we can come before him. And he said to me, now again, Daniel 8.14, 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Okay, all this blood has been accumulating in there. Now, what do we do with it? What does the scripture have to say? When you're talking about prophetic time, there's something that comes into play called the year-day principle. A lot of people don't take that into account. The year-day principle. Ezekiel itemizes it. So does uh, Numbers. Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34. I have appointed thee each day for a year. And then in Numbers it says each day for a year. What does this mean? When we're dealing with prophetic time, when it says 2,300 days, it means 2,300 years, you see. Now that makes sense because Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, at least. Okay? And, but this goes even back beyond Jesus. As we calculate this then, it's 2,300 years Notice what it says in 921 of Daniel. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning of the vision, being caused to fly swiftly. Now somebody asked about angel wings. Maybe he literally flapped his wings, but as far as I know, outer space doesn't, there's nothing there to flap your wings on. Could it be symbolic of speed or liquid, uh, what do you call it, liquidity or whatever? All right. He reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, I don't know how far away heaven is, but if it takes the light of the sun to reach the earth about 10 minutes, going at the speed of light, it takes about roughly three minutes to say Daniel's prayer. And when Daniel finishes prayer, the angel Gabriel's already there twiddling his thumb, waiting for him to finish. So those angels must be moving quite fast because I have a suspicion that the throne of God is somewhere beyond the sun. Right? They must be moving. Speed of thought, I don't know. Notice it says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. What is this saying? Out of the 2,300 years, I'm cutting off. That's what it means, determined. I'm cutting off 70 weeks. And this is reserved for the children of Israel to get their act together. For what purpose? To receive the Messiah. To prepare for and accept the Messiah. Notice, it says 70 weeks are determined or set aside for your people out of the 2300. Okay? Now, if... A week is seven days, and there are 70 weeks of seven days. That's 490 years. Isn't it interesting that when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my neighbor who offends me? And he thought, well, shall I forgive him 70 times? Yeah, that's pretty good. Once, once, you know, once is okay, but I'll forgive him. I'll be generous. I'll forgive him seven times. What did Jesus say? You forgive him 70 times 7. What does that come up to? 
70 times 7 comes up to 490. What was he saying? Jesus was saying to Peter, you forgive your neighbor as much as I have forgiven you and your people, you see, who should have accepted me. All right, when? Now our question. This is a significant thing. And this is one prophecy where you can nail down a date historically. When do these 2,300 days end? When do they, well, better find out when they begin, right? It's interesting that in Daniel 9.25, he gives us the key to this. Notice what it says. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What is 62 and 7? Huh? You mathematicians. What's 62 and 7? 69, right? 69 weeks. You've got to multiply that by 7 to get years, right? The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So, if we start counting from the time the wall of Jerusalem, the decree to build it, not the actual building, but the decree to build it, we can start counting our 2,300 years. All right. When did that happen? From the decree to restore uh, until the anointing of the Messiah, 69 weeks comes up to 483 years. Okay? According to Ezra 7, and there's a fellow by the name of, an archaeologist by the name of Siegfried Horn, who wrote a, a small pamphlet called The Chronology of Ezra 7, and he nailed that date down historically. It, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was issued in the year 457 B.C. So this 2300-year prophecy begins in 457 B.C., less than 500 years before Christ. All right, if that's the case, the decree to rebuild is here, 457. We now measure 483 years. My, isn't that interesting? It brings us up to 27. Now, we've got a problem. You mathematicians, if you take these two numbers, they actually come up to 26, not 27. Not 27. So why does that say 27? You've got to remember another principle. And a lot of people make a mistake on this. You will actually read books when they will say Jesus was baptized in 26 A.D. But they're not taking into account a very important biblical principle, and that is there is no such thing as a zero year. When you're going from B.C. to A.D., there's no zero year, which means that it pushes the number ahead one more year. Now, you can actually sit down and draw the years out, you know, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, that type of thing, spring, fall, spring, fall, and you will come up to 27 A.D. But the simplest way is just remember there's no zero year. Okay? So, what happens? This prophecy predicted that whoever the Messiah would be, that he would be anointed in 27 A.D., What is the anointing of Jesus? It's the baptism of Jesus. And notice, Luke says in uh, 3.1, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Okay, let's get all these fellows together and see what year they were all doing these things. Look in Luke 3.21 and 22. When the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. 
And the voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now notice here, once again, where do you have the Son? In the water. Where do you have the Father speaking? From heaven. Where do you find the Holy Spirit? Coming down in the form of the dove. At Jesus' baptism, you got the triune God there. The triunity of God. I don't like to use the word Trinity because some people um, have weird ideas of what the Trinity is. But it's, I like to use the word triunity. It means the same thing. Sounds more biblical. Uh, anyway, so notice, he says, you are my, my son. You are my appointed one. What does the word Christ mean? It means the Messiah. It means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. And Jesus is, means Savior. So he is the one who's appointed to save us, who is anointed by God. Where was he anointed? 27 AD in the water. It was in 27 AD that history says was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which is exactly what the text said. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God said to his son. Now, what's he mean, the fullness of time? Does it sound like God is following a timetable? God's working on a timetable. Jesus is. Jesus said to his brothers, my time has not yet come. And then when they went up to Jerusalem, he turns to his disciples and says, my time has come. Let's go to Jerusalem. Jesus was operating on a timetable. Why? Because he was fulfilling the prophecy. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news that he has paid the price for your sins and you don't have to pay them yourself. In Daniel 9.27, it says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Nah, one week. Hang on a second. Didn't we say that was a 70-week prophecy? And didn't we say that 69 of the 70 weeks were for the Jews to get their act together and accept the Messiah? Aha. Uh-huh. So there's one week left. Notice what it says. It says, and in the midst. What's the midst of the week? The middle of the week, right? In the middle of the week, he shall cause his sacrifice and oblations to cease. When Jesus was crucified, what happened to the curtain in the temple? It was torn, you see. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, was hung on the cross, he made obsolete the temple uh, service. Now let's look at this for a moment. Here's the 483 years of probation upon the Jews. And then, this is out of proportion, obviously. This is one week here. But one prophetic week would be seven years. The midst of it would be three and a half years on one side, three and a half on the other. Jesus' ministry, you look in the scriptures, Jesus' ministry on earth was only three and a half years. Boy, did he accomplish a lot in three and a half years. You see, here's where he's baptized. Here's where he initiates his work as the Messiah. Here's where he is cut off, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people, you see. And then what? We've got three and a half years after that. It says the gospel was to go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Here again, God gives the Jews, even after the crucifixion of Jesus, he gave the Jewish nation. I'm not talking about the Jewish people. I'm talking about the Jewish nation, you see. A chance to accept him. And if they weren't going to take the gospel to the world, he'd find somebody else that would be willing. And so, here we see the decree to rebuild. Back there in 457, In 27, we see the baptism of Jesus. We see the cross in 31 A.D. 
So what does that bring us up to? The gospel going to the Gentiles in 34 A.D. Guess what happened in 34 A.D.? The deacon, who? Stephen, was stoned. Who was holding the jackets or the clothes of the guy stoning him? Saul of Tarsus. And when he finished with, with uh, Stephen, he went to Damascus to arrest and to throw in jail and to kill the Christians. But on the way to Damascus, he runs into Jesus. And he, Jesus appears to him. And Jesus gave him a special commission. He couldn't very well go back and preach to the Jews because they considered him a Benedict Arnold, you see. They considered him a Meshumid, a destroyer of the faith. And so he said, no, I'm sending you on a different mission. I'm sending you to all the nations of the world. I am sending you as my representative to the non-Jews. The word Gentile simply means non-Jew, that's all. And so we find that from 34 AD, the gospel... By the way, the Peter and the others are still ministering to the Jews. But Paul and Barnabas, they start taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So we see then that this whole scenario is cut off from the 2300. Well, you mathematicians, if you do some quick math, that tells us that there's 1810 years left in this 2300 year prophecy. You see. So what does that mean? If the 23 year 100 prophecy started in 457 BC, then it ends in 1843, if you calculate. 1843. But because there's no zero year, it kicks it over to 1844. What does this mean? According to this prophecy, we start moving into end times from 1844 on. Now, in the scriptures it says, and time shall be no more. Now, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean there's not going to be any more time. It means time prophecies will be no more. From 1844 onward, we have no time prophecies that we can nail down. Therefore, we can't nail down the day and the hour of Jesus' coming. We can look for signs. We can look for evidences, but we can't nail down the date. Notice in Revelation 14, 7. Again, fear God, give glory to him. Why? The hour of his judgment has come. And the church of Laodicea is the church of the judgment. And what time period are we living in according to Revelation? We are living in the Laodicean period. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary making intercession for you and for me. How thankful I am that we have a high priest who cares for us. In closing, I want to share a little story with you. In 1995, in the Olympics... There was a, a young man who uh, was representing Great Britain. And as they were having the marathon race there, I think it was a marathon, I can't remember which one it was, he entered it and he was running. He was coming around his last lap. And he was doing well. He was pouring his heart out. But as he came around the bend, all of a sudden he felt a sharp pain in his leg. And Derek uh, Redman fell to the ground. He knew immediately what happened. He had torn a hamstring muscle. And the, the other runners ran right past him and kept going. He laid there on the, on the uh, field there in aching in pain. The medics came out to help him. And they tried to get him up and take him off the field. He said, no. He says, I'm going to finish the race. And he hobbled along. And I remember when this happened. He hobbled along 
but he was in such pain, he was having trouble. When all of a sudden, an older man jumped over the fence and ran toward him, wearing a shirt that says, have you hugged your kids today? He, he ran over to him and he put his arm around him and he said, son, you don't have to do this. And he looked up into the face of his father and he said, dad, yes, I do. And his father took him and he said, you lean on me and we will finish together. And Derek Redman and his father continued to hobble along at a slow rate, but they made it over the finish line. And you know what? The cheers that went up from the audience, the whole audience stood to their feet and they cheered and they were giving all kinds of approval. And you know what? He was receiving more cheers than the one who had made, the, made it in first and got the gold medal. You see, this is what God wants to do with his children and the judgment. He wants to say, come on, you can do it. You can make it. And I'm with you. I'm with you to the very end. This is the love of God that he has for us. And so, my friends, tonight, I want to repeat that the judgment is a positive thing. It's something to look forward to if you're in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the love that you have for us and that you have done everything possible to be sure that we are vindicated in the judgment. Help us to be faithful, Lord. And when Jesus comes, may we receive a positive reward because of the faith that we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen.